You're listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel, and we're digging deep into stories of food, race, radical love, and healing social justice. Today's show is Organizing for Freedom. Our guests are Issa Mujahid and Kamel Scott Mujahid. They're the husband and wife team behind CT Corps Organize Now, a grassroots organization based in Connecticut. The goal of CT Corps Organize Now is to build anti-racist community and to co-create a movement for greater racial equity in our state. They are training a network of grassroots leaders and doing policy work focused on dismantling institutionalized racism and inequity in Connecticut. CT Corps has four racial justice issues as their focus, criminal justice reform, education equity, economic justice, and environmental justice slash health equity. I invited them here today to share their insights on the importance of community building and how we can transform the racial and economic divisions in our state and our society. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Can you guys hear them? Mm-hmm. All right. Later in our conversation, I want to hear about the specific organizing work and campaigns that you're both leading. But to start us off, I'd like to learn a little bit about what led you both into the work that you're doing and the way that you do it. So I'm wondering if you can share some of the experiences or the people in your lives that have inspired you to do the work that you do in the way that you do. Um, so for me, it really started with my family, uh, my parents, and my grandparents um, at a really early age. Um, my grandmother would literally literally sit me at her knee or at her foot in her living room and tell me about our history, tell me about um, uh, black oppression in this country, um, the struggle for black liberation in this country, um, the roles that they played in trying to make life a little bit better for their children and grandchildren, and also the duty that I had to continue that work. Mm. Um, and that's just something that's, to me is just still very a vivid part of my childhood um and something that i've always carried not something i always fully understood how it would manifest but something that i knew was really essential to my purpose Mm -hmm. and over the years as i kind of grew to understand and step into my own identity as a person as a black man as a muslim um as a community leader, um, the picture started to come in a bit more into focus about you know how I was going to step into that role as far as carrying the work. And um, a big part of that uh, picture coming into focus was uh, meeting and marrying Kamel, um, and who you know I was really attracted to in the beginning because of a similar worldview that mm-hmm. she shared. And over the years, through our relationship, really thinking about the work and like our responsibility to carrying this work forward, um, together we were able to um, think about like specifically how we want to um, show up mm-hmm. in this work. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, um, I share some of that, obviously. Um, uh, I would say my motivation really also came from my life experience growing up um, as you know in a poor black family um, on the border, and um, on the border meaning where on the border in El Paso, Texas. Okay, um, and just you know one issue that I'm particularly passionate about is um, ending the drug war, 
And that is something that had a huge impact on my life and my childhood, on my family, um, has, you know, brought incredible destruction to um, my family in, in terms of, the, you know, the lives of people who were affected by it, um, being taken out of the home, being put into mass incarceration systems, the, the impact of not having a health infrastructure for um, addiction that mm. would have, you know, supported people in, in getting off of drugs and being able to support their families. Um, and then on top of that, just an incredible extraction of wealth. Um, from a family, you know, our family, which had gone through a generation of, um, uh, had had over a generation um, through actually serving in the military, been able to get into the middle class, and then um, in in the blink of an eye, um, that wealth being stripped away, um, and incredible destruction um, coming on the family. So, and the um, wealth being stripped away by what? What? Um, I would say, like you know, combination of you know, just the way that the the way that systems impact. Um, uh, families around the drug war. So when, um, you know, for example, recently when a family member was incarcerated, um, that person I think had um, had some savings tucked away um, mm. and they were also living on um, social security. So um, this is someone who had uh, a, a close family member who had been struggling with drug addiction for a really long time and who um, had, was on social security, had that taken away because they were incarcerated and then within the, the system, um, you know, especially because this person struggled with diabetes, needed to have certain, you know, food items sent that the that the prison wasn't necessarily um, meeting those dietary needs, the cost of phone calls, the cost of just being in contact and supporting people through that period. Um, and then just travel, you know, because this person was in El Paso and then was moved to um, a facility in um, uh Oh, Gatesville, which mm-hmm. is the other side of Texas. And, you know, most people know Texas is an enormous state. Um, mm-hmm. So we're talking the clean other side of the state and then move to Odessa and then having to find their own way back from there, back home to El Paso. So um, just the amount of money that just evaporated. Right. Um, most people don't think about this stuff. They don't they don't know that it costs a fortune to call your right. family out of prison. They don't think about bail and all these other things that cost money that prisons don't actually take care of people's health care needs. Right. People don't realize that. And that really it all started with an addiction issue. Right. And we're talking about an elderly person Mm. who is um, in a wheelchair and not a not Not violent, not a threat to anybody who who has never been violent. Um, But the way that the system works, that's the system that's there to catch people when um, when they fall into the depths of addiction. So that's something I personally felt really passionate about. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, some years ago, almost four, I guess 14 years ago, I came up to New Haven to, to go to Yale. And um, that was a, a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also quite um, uh, something that really pushed me um, in terms of my understanding of inequality and, um, and my commitment to working on those issues, um, just to see the poverty and, um, uh, you know, struggle that I grew up in juxtaposed with this incredible wealth and privilege and power and just realizing, you know, these are young, young people who had access to wealth and power that the adults in my family had never would never dream of. Um, and who I watched sometimes daily throwing it down the drain, you know, right. <laughs> just just wasting it and the incredible amount of drug use that went on on that campus and, and serious, you know, serious right. drug use. That went on and abuse um, that was never nobody ever ended up nobody in jail ever for ended it. up in jail if somebody if somebody reached that limit 
then there was a system there to catch them that was gentle and and that cared about their humanity. So um, being exposed to that um, was, you know, I'll say that was like the beginning of my rage (laughs) personally, just getting um, really angry um, that so many people were, were able to have wealth, waste it, you know, have wealth beyond what they could possibly need. And so many other people were struggling, suffering and dying. So, yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate to that growing up. I mean, not obviously not exactly your story, but growing up in New Haven in the height of the Mm -hmm. crack and epidemic in the late 80s and early 90s. And then I went to Sarah Lawrence College, which was a private college, not to the level of Yale, but I had never understood what wealth was until I went there or what privilege. Obviously, I have privilege as a white person and I felt that growing up here very much. But when I went to a private college, it totally blew my mind about the difference between what was going on where I came from and what was going on in some other parts of the world. So I I think that's the case for a lot of people, you know, college can be a really um, eye opening experience in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like both of you have these very personal experiences, both with people who were working for civil rights and teaching you about that. And then also these, these experiences that taught you probably in many ways you didn't just share about the injustices. I'm wondering if you can, talk a little bit about what the vision that you have is right now about what you're trying to build. Mm. Yeah. Um, Do you want to answer that? Uh, You can start. Okay. Um, So I think, you know, our vision for what we want to build is, is multifold. um, But ultimately we want to build a movement um, in the state to um, dismantle systemic racism and, and, and inequity in the state. Um, and our method for that, like, actually brings a, a lot more things that we want to build. So it's it's um, building is actually a kind of a strategy of ours, I would say. So um, uh, so we're building community, um, we're building relationships, um, and and also we think it's important to also engage in building strong black led and people of color led um, institutions mm-hmm. in in different parts of the of our state that can that can actually hold communities down. Yeah. Um, so Kamel and I, you know, we bet through organizing and activism and, and I've been organizing since I returned home from the army in the early 2000s, um, in various parts of the state. Um, and over the years I've, I've seen some, some gaps, um, and organizing and advocacy in Connecticut, you know, posing a question to myself over the years. Well, we're in this, you know, supposedly progressive state but we have some of the largest inequities, systemic inequities in the country um, around wealth, around um, achievement, um, highly disproportional rates of incarceration. And, you know, I started to identify some gaps um, that um, if we could fill those could possibly um, help the organizing be more uh, impactful and, Some of those things are what we're trying to build, you know, infrastructure is a, a better organizing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so CT Core is building a statewide network um, in order to help facilitate the movement building. Uh, Kamel just mentioned, um, we're also now in our second year um, establishing local chapters around the state to build um, local power, uh, political power across the state and, and a number of of districts um, in order to move a black, a POC agenda. POC being people of color. People of color, for sure. 
um, and also facilitating the creation of that agenda. And so since January, we've been meeting with folks from around the state to develop a racial justice platform. Um, and that's some, a process that we're going to carry out through to the end of the summer um, and then share it with the public in the fall. So when you were when you were talking about gaps, it sounds like the gaps that you're saying was leadership by black people and people of color yeah. and an agenda that actually reflects mm-hmm. what communities of color are saying they need. Is that yeah. is that what you meant yeah, by the gap? And then the infrastructure to, to move that agenda forward. So, the organizing right. infrastructure, like the people behind it to push the agenda. Yeah. Is that what you mean? So or or the, other the, things? The networks, the ability to mobilize people, okay. the way to coordinate organizing strategies mm-hmm. um, in order to kind of to move the agenda, to plan and strategize collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, these things kind of, I've seen them happen um, as different kind of issues pop up, but then, but often, I apologize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Still not hearing in my in my headphones, so that might be contributing to it. Um, yep, that's better. All right, I Can won't you hear move. it now. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So, um, yeah. So you know, different issues would come up. Uh, I've been in you know in a number of coalitions, and we would work together, strategize together, mobilize together around the state in a coordinated way to pass a specific uh, policy piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, kind of once that happened or didn't happen. Um, that kind of coalition would dissipate. The relationships will still be there and may kind of reconvene for another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to have that sustained organizing infrastructure where we're consistently um, strategizing together, community building together, training together um, right. in order to create and move an agenda. Right. Mm-hmm. And can you say, just for people who maybe haven't thought about this in quite this way before, mm-hmm. do those systems and supports exist for issues and things that are typically more led by white people? Um, so it's funny when, when, when I, um, so CC Core was founded last January. So we're like a year and a half old right now. Um, and so the original thinking from the very beginning was to create an organizing network, but also to be able to build grassroots power, but with a statewide reach. Mm-hmm. And so building up in uh, local uh, leadership in Bridgeport, New Haven, Hartford, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, with the network piece, um, I think my original thinking was, well, just organizing in general needs more infrastructure. So mm-hmm. social justice organizing at large. Um <clears throat> As, you know, the work started to unfold and the need for more support for POC-led work and a POC-led agenda um, became even clearer than it was to me at that point. Because it was pretty clear to me at that point. But actually, once we started to dive into it, it was like, wow, there are a lot of obstacles to mm. black leadership in this work. Um, the network itself had became a more POC racial justice focus as well. So I think, you know, there are some supports for white-led organizing. I think white-led organizations have access to a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. But I think um, organizing in general in Connecticut needs more coordinated infrastructure. And I think the white-led progressive organizing needs more um, racial justice centering mm. itself. Right. Um, they're doing great work. And, and I've been and continue to be involved in a lot of broader social justice campaigns yeah but without a racial justice centering um they'll never be really yeah, addressing the, the, some the of those root, root issues yeah, yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting i i've been thinking a lot over the past bunch of years that we usually talk about racism like about a black white issue but really and we tend not to use the word white supremacy mm-hmm. but because it triggers just kkk right mm-hmm. when we say that but 
if you think about racism as white supremacy, like our country is set up to be supporting white led businesses, white led mm-hmm. organizations mm-hmm. And, and communities. Like we have policies that have been put in place. Mm-hmm. We never think of those policies as like KKK yeah. kind of lynching kind of policies, but right. there are policies that have provided supports right. for housing. Like the mm-hmm. new deal did not surprise, you know, provide yeah. supports for mm-hmm. most um, jobs held by black people like it excluded yeah. domestic workers it excluded agricultural workers at the time those were mm-hmm. actually and still are primarily jobs held by people of color and so we have policies that have supported white communities and intentionally mm-hmm. not supported housing Absolutely. and other thing for people of color yeah. and i think part of the problem of how we've talked about racism in our country is that we have made it like either your a Nazi or in the KKK or you're a liberal and you're not. And the reality is like our society is kind of founded on these things that are about racism and white supremacy. And I think it's so important for white organizations to take on the responsibility of addressing racism and addressing these structural things that prevent funding, prevent housing, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the war on drugs, all these things that have really disproportionately hurt people of color. And it shouldn't be people of color who are the ones who are, responsible for changing that like white led organizations need to be yeah. stepping up to do a lot of that work yeah mm. you know yeah no I, I i was gonna say i know to take off of that point as well like we can see in the infrastructure of how um nonprofit the nonprofit industrial complex operates in in our state and around i think in many parts of the country as well where because there's more access to resources for white led organizations and because a lot of the folks who provide those resources often want there to be a focus in communities of color, you end up with a pattern of white-led work going into communities of color without drawing on the leadership, especially at the highest levels of that organization of people who live in those communities, um, which also at, at, on the flip side leaves an enormous gap in poor white communities where there isn't a lot of organizing happening outside of groups like the KKK and, you know, folks who are, who, you know, for, for example, like, um, trying to get Donald Trump elected like that there um, there are certain folks who are going into those communities and then there are there are folks who have probably more accurate answers to the questions that poor white people are asking about their economic situation that aren't there that there mm-hmm. there isn't the support for them to be there and um, and if they were there what would that look like and what would it make possible for those folks to have answers to their questions that are not well that brown person over there did this to you right you know yeah, that that leads into something that I wanted to ask you about, which is that, um, you know, the story that we tell about poverty is that you think of like the story of the 80s of the welfare mom, which was mm-hmm. characterized as like a poor black woman mm-hmm. who's mooching off the system. Right. And this idea that like poverty is something that people choose and people and I feel like Donald Trump is kind of reinvigorating this story about poverty mm-hmm. again. Not that we've ever let it go, but it's like coming back stronger, which is that. Um, the idea that people just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that if you're in poverty, it's because you're not working hard enough and, and you know, it's your fault, basically, that you're in poverty. And in fact, that's not true at all. Um, but I think that when I look at our state and these incredible concentrations of wealth in mostly white communities, and then we have poor rural communities that are white, mostly white, and then we have cities that are a mix of some of them are, are primarily people of color and where there's a lot of concentration of poverty and, mm-hmm. and needs. Um, I have this question of like, how do we change that story? Because to change policy and to change funding and all those things involves 
changing that story that we're telling about why people are in poverty. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't see it that way, but I wanted to know what you think of that and how you think about addressing those like root, the root issues of, of how we're dealing with poverty, racial and economic inequity in our state. Well, this sounds um, maybe a little cliche, but I think, you know, the end of the day, you know, truth is more powerful than a lie. But the thing <laughs> is uncovering the truth. And I think that's a challenge for um, white and white communities and communities of color because we've all been fed this myth, right? This lie that and racism is is a huge lie. It's a huge myth, right? And so um, th- it, it takes a lot of work to even um, dig in to find the truth that like all the 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 roots of racism and everything that you're taught, everything that you know this this population over here um is inferior this population over here is superior and that kind of is messaged in a lot of different ways um it's a lie mm-hmm. right and and the thing is like that lie goes back to the country's founding and so and we know this but we kind of ignore this um so it takes it takes that digging right and then i think being able to sit on sit on the truth um and um repel repel the lies I think ultimately we'll win out, but it, it's going to take um, a movement like based in truth. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, while it's not, um, it shouldn't be incumbent upon communities of color to kind of go into kind of going back to like a previous um, question to, um, you know, educate or move like white led organizations to like, recognize how that myth is manifesting in this organization and then like undo that. Like that's, that's a lot of work. Um, you know, I think within, within communities of color, recognizing our own truth for the sake of our own, being able to stand on our own humanity and the Mm -hmm. humanity within our community, like, right. That also takes a lot of work. But once we find that, and once we can do the work with our community to find that and stand on that and remain on that, what will happen is when those, uh, myths of racism are perpetuated against us we push them back and then sort of what i see and i think it's in large part of the next generation of organizing activists that are coming up who in large part are standing on that truth who have recognized their humanity and are pushing back then a lot of um the white allies community members out there who have been per- perpetuating this myth subconsciously or consciously really don't have a choice, but to, to see the lie and either and make pretty much a conscious decision, whether they want to unlearn that lie or they want to p- perpetuate it. And mm-hmm. I think um, you can kind of see a clear shift. So when Donald Trump is running his campaign on um, bigotry and people are buying into that, like that, it's so clear, right? It's like a conscious decision. I'm going to like, reanimate this these these lies i'm gonna make america great we're gonna go back to our racist history and we're gonna try to like give some new life into this because you know with this black president and all this these conversations about equity and safe spaces like this is not this is not the direction we want to go into right so people are making a conscious decision to like perpetuate the myth right but other then there's a lot of resistance but i think in the middle there's a lot of confusion as Mm -hmm. well Right. Um, How to understand yeah. it. What and to a lot do of differently. people perpetuating it who don't, who aren't consciously aware or mm. sometimes willfully unconscious um, of, of that reality. I, mean, I would agree with everything mm. that you just said. And, and for me, it also comes down to power. 
um, in terms of changing the story. I think um, right. I agree with you said that the that the truth is going to win out in the end. And that's the foundation that you build your movement on. You build it on a foundation of truth. That's what keeps your movement together, you know, truth and community. And then you and then you put, you know, your work into shifting the, that power by, you know, um, building communities of resistance um, around, you know, in our case around the state, um, that can stand up to the lies, mm-hmm. you know, but, but at the end of the day, um, you know, personally, I struggle with the notion that, that folks who are where they are right now, who are not ready to either like move on a racial equity issue or who are per- participating in perpetuating racial inequity, that, um, that conversation, you know, is going to get them there alone. I think the conversation is really important. And at the end of the day, I think there has to be a simultaneous effort to challenge and shift power um, so that, you know, part of the issue that we have around poverty in this state and in this country is that the people who make policy about poverty, like, ain't never been poor, like, ever, you know? And as someone who has been, like, you can see that. Like, when you see people making policies, Mm -hmm. you go, these people don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. You know, so it's, you know, how are we bringing people into the fold? And there are some people, the people generally who are making good policy, who either themselves have experienced poverty or who have made the effort to connect with folks who have. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, like, how are we shifting power so that folks who are who have lived in poverty, who are, are living in poverty, also have access to be able to run for office, to be mm-hmm. able to, to hold positions of power? Um Personally, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that people get to represent their own experiences in the halls of power in our state and in our country. Right. And it's it's interesting because I think when people listen to this who haven't thought about this before in this way, um, that, I, I mean, I've been thinking about, like, let's not just preach to the converted, right? Like, right. let's talk to people. Part of this changing the story is that we need people who don't understand this to listen to this, mm-hmm. is that white people have there are lots of working class white people who have gotten into political positions of power and who 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 use exactly the argument you just said mm. i came from a working class family my parents worked in a factory right, right, right. i know what was hard of life down on the ground and so i'm going to work to to fight for the people right and the people meant in their in most cases white people mm-hmm. and the difference is that there there are differences in poverty in communities of color and obstacles that exist for people of color um because when you walk in, you can't just put on a suit and get rid of your skin color. When you walk, you could dress up, but you are still seen as a person of color. Mm-hmm. And so there are barriers that come just from being a person of color Absolutely. in poverty versus being a white person in poverty. And those barriers do have to do with policies and privileges and systems, mm-hmm. not just about pulling yourself up. And so, yeah, no. And when we talk about that issue, I mean, you bring up the issue of generational poverty and, and generational theft and exploitation because you know in the the poor white community although like there is there is often generational poverty there's often poverty that is right that that's serious um we have to also look at the ways in which communities of color have been and continue to be targeted by systems in this country that seek to extract wealth Mm -hmm. so um and 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 white communities have been targeted by that too but just the disproportional targeting of people of color because um, I think often the folks who do that targeting bet on um, the fact that people won't care about right. it happening to people of color. People take it for granted that people of color are just poor and that's mm-hmm. and that's how they should be. So. Yeah. So I want you to give an example of that in one second, but we're okay. just going to let people know that they're listening to WNHH Radio 103.5 FM. This is The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel, and we are talking with 
the founding members of CT Core Organize Now about working for racial justice in Connecticut. Mm. So, Kamel, can you give me an example of um, how uh, people of color are targeted by systems that that maybe yeah. people don't know? About? I mean, absolutely. There's there's so many examples. Um, I think one, uh, if you look at the way that the 2008 crash hit communities of color relative to white communities. Um, with the um, the way that people lost the, the way that people of color were targeted by the predatory lending system mm-hmm. and then lost their homes, um, some homes that had been held for generations. So there was an a, there was incredible loss of po- uh, property that happened um, that was disproportionately um, uh, um, falling on. Um, I know specifically black communities and I would imagine people of color more generally as well. Um, and then, you know, again, just to look at the criminal justice system and the way that police, you know, have interacted with black communities, the um, things like civil forfeiture, um, mm-hmm. where if you're pulled over um, and, you know, it depends on where you are with the laws. I think in some places you don't even need to be convicted. Um, you just need to be suspected to, for the police to basically just take whatever money you have on you or or take um, or take property from you that that if they suspect that it's involved in the commission of a crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, I know there that the ACLU, I wish I had um, a better memory of what they're working on, but um, they had been working on some policies to um, change the civil forfeiture laws in, in this state. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's one example, the example that I gave earlier about the, um, the way that people who are involved in the system have wealth extracted from them. And then not to mention the fact that, you know, once you have a felony on your record or once you have um, anything on your record, really it becomes that much harder to um, get a job, to keep a job. Um, and, you know, I could go on and on, but there's mm-hmm. there's many, many, many examples of this throughout our history. Um, and, uh, and, and that is not even to acknowledge the enormous debt that is owed to our people in terms of reparations mm-hmm. um, for slavery, for, for um, centuries of unpaid labor that our ancestors did, for um, the, the, crimes the the violence and the and the um, exploitation that happened to us during the era of um post-reconstruction jim crow mm-hmm. um looking back at places like um uh, black wall street in tulsa oklahoma where you know a black community had started to put put something together that um you know started to build wealth collectively and you know white folks from the surrounding area came in and burned it to the ground mm-hmm. and killed people and um all of that gone so there is a long history, an incredibly long history, and that's why you, when I say generational poverty, like it's it's right. deep, right? And I think we don't talk enough about the generational wealth sometimes too. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the wealth that's concentrated in white families right. came from profiting mm-hmm. off of having free labor on plantations, right? And whether it was people in this country or people in Europe who also were profiting off of slavery, although it often was from abroad, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Many countries in Europe were, were colonizing right. all parts of Africa, India, um, other places where they were still profiting off of slavery in different ways. That 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 concentration of wealth. Um, I mean, we talk about reparations. It's it's not just an abstract thing. Like that wealth came came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you've mentioned a few of the challenges of doing this work, um, but. Are there any other things that you want to share around what some of the obstacles or challenges are to to creating the movement that you're trying to build? Um, I mean, the obstacles are very similar to the the obstacles that were put in place in the beginning uh, intentionally. And, you know, we're here sitting as a couple, um, you know, and, you know, organizers of an organization is talking about building black power 
building black institutions. Um, and it's 2017. You know, this country right. is more than 200 right. years old and we're still trying to build uh, institutions and power for a population that has been here since the beginning, right. since before mm-hmm. the beginning. Right. And, um, and so as we're getting our footing um, on a foundation of truth um, and trying to build up from that foundation, um, those obstacles that have been in place for centuries still exist. Mm-hmm. And we find ourselves in 2017 in New Haven, Connecticut, um, in the month of June, <laughs> pushing up against centuries old right. mm-hmm. the same stuff. obstacles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it's extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, yeah. the things that really help to sustain you in this work? Because I think it's exhausting, right? It's yeah. really hard work <laughs> emotionally, physically, yeah. everything. What are some of the things that sustain you? I mean, you guys have kids too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have a family. Yeah, um, yeah I would say um, it, that, that speaks to like the intentionality of why we set our work up the way that we did um, with the three pillars of community organizing, training, and community building. And we try to run community building through everything that we do. So our organizing work is like generally, um, you know, just bringing people together around specific issues to build campaigns, take action and change policy. Our training work is something that we provide um, to prepare leaders to um, do racial justice work around the state. Um, and there's different different trainings that we offer, uh, offer and will be offering. Um, and then the final piece, this community building piece is, is really, I think, the thing that sustains the work and helps to sustain us as well, um, which is it's sometimes it's a little hard to describe, but it's really um, about a, a specific approach to how we work and the kinds of spaces that we create that are, um, one, I would say, welcoming and affirming to everyone, which speaks to the kind of world that we want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're trying to, as we do this work, also try to create that world within our work. Um, um, so that it permeates everything that we do. Um, so, so there's that piece, and just you know, so can building. you talk a little like what what do you feel like you do to create that welcoming community? Um, well, yeah, I think well, one thing that we tried at a recent meeting that was really nice was um, having childcare. I mean, we always try to have childcare for meetings, but having childcare that was actually in the room um, when we were doing work, so there were actually children like walking through the meeting. In this case, it was our kids, um, <laughs> and they were um, and they were having a great time. Um, but just like not feeling like we necessarily need to separate people. I think, you know, also um, being really intentional about intergenerational organizing in general. So making sure that we're reaching out to young people, reaching out to elders and everybody in between um, and building those bonds. Um, so it's hard to say because there's it runs through every part of our work. So it, it looks different in different right. places. But I would also say just the way that we're we're hoping we're, we're working on building a network with other organizations and individuals that are committed to doing this work, especially people of color led work and black led work. And, um, and you know, the, the beautiful thing about that is that the um, there does exist in the state um, uh, a, a number of organizations that have been hanging in, in spite of all of the challenges and all of the barriers and doing incredible work. Um, oftentimes, you know, really under-resourced, um, which I think we need to start, you know, pushing um, the people who are holding resources and supporting work to really take another look at these at these um, initiatives. They're usually they're they're often under-resourced, but um, are still able to do um, incredible work. And um, we've been overwhelmed with the the just um, strength of our relationships and the, and the way that people have come around, um, what we're doing and invited us to come around what they're doing. So we move a lot in, in collaboration and partnership as well. Mm -hmm. 
which also, um, it, you know, I would say to speak to the sustainability piece creates um, a, a a way in which we can share our power bases and bring that together and share skills. Like some people understand things I don't understand, like about social media or, you know, how to do, you know, civil disobedience or how to connect to this community or, you know, how to reach out and get information quickly about certain issues. So we're able to like plug in with each other's networks and say, okay, well, you know, CT core can mobilize these relationships in this organization. We work a lot with people against police brutality in new Haven, mm -hmm. so they can mobilize certain relationships and they can bring a certain expertise and understanding to the work. So um, that's a really important part of how we move as well. And, and that's also centered in building a community of action and a community of leadership that is, um, we are deeply invested in the growth and the development of those organizations as well as the the development of our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I know that you have a number of campaigns going on and, and issues that you're working on and, you know, people often think about like criminal justice reform and education and economic equity as these, these pieces that are very more obvious places where there's racial and economic disparity. Mm -hmm. And I notice in your platform that you also have environmental justice and health inequity as an issue which is not always there um especially in people of color-led work although it's becoming more and more mm -hmm. so um, especially as black farmers there's more and more black farmers who are saying hey we need to have land we need to mobilize mm -hmm. these are important issues but i'd love to hear you talk about why those both environmental justice and, and health equity are part of your core platform and, and what that looks like yeah um i you know in the beginning i think um uh, part of like the impetus um, behind CT Core, and you know what I was speaking to earlier about, um, like the need for more Black leadership. On, on um, there was a need. I, you know, there were some gaps, right? And then, and part of those gaps was uh, a need for Black leadership and moving racial justice issues. Um, and I think uh, the impetus in the beginning was um, very criminal justice reform heavy. Um, there have been like a lot of initiatives currently still. Um, some initiated by the governor um, and others initiated by others, like at the state level that are looking at different criminal justice reform um, measures. Mm -hmm. Very few of them are led by either people of color, um, black people, um, and where, you know, um, the ones who are affected, by, affected yeah. by the criminal yeah. justice mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. um, or people who have um, been previously incarcerated right. or have, have had interactions with the criminal justice right. system. Um, so you just, just like by definition, you can't have equity that way. Right. Um, but this is so, but like, as we started, uh, I started to think about, um, trying to bring about systemic changes, it just became impossible <clears throat> to think about, um, just criminal justice reform. Um, and that there, and, and, and thinking about like the broader, like organizing infrastructure needs to, to ultimately eliminate all systemic inequities in our state, that there was going to have to be, um, a broader, a broader scope. And I think um, personally, I've been involved in some um, environmental justice issues, um, living and organizing in Bridgeport. Um, there's a lot of polluting industry in Bridgeport. Mm. Um, I worked at the Bridgeport Health Department for about six years. Wow. Um, and so um, my mom's a nurse. I was a medic in the U.S. Army. Um, and so, you know, issues, maybe not necessarily systemic inequity, but issues of health were always important to me. Um, and then doing the work as, um, at the health department while also kind of doing my organizing thing on the side, um, started to see opportunities to like address it at the systemic level. Um, and so I think a lot of it was just personal experience and the need to have like a, a, a broad 
um, systemic focus mm-hmm. um, around um, around equity. Um, but since forming CORE, uh, food justice has become a priority for uh, CC CORE. Um, the initial kind of um, touch with food justice is more through an economic justice framework. But since it's risen up and I've become more educated and we've been involved in more networks, absolutely <clears throat> the connection to the environment and health um, is very prominent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you say like you started out with as an economic piece, do you mean like around hunger or uh, around more self-determination? And so um, again, going back to Bridgeport um, where there are food apartheid like communities where um, through decisions made by the political structures, there are communities that are shut out from affordable, healthy food. Right. And after enduring that for decades, um, I came in contact with some community members last spring who were trying to figure out how to remedy this themselves. Um, and so I saw that initially as an important um, economic campaign. Right. Um, to be honest, I wasn't even thinking about the access to food piece. I was like, yeah, the community should be controlling these markets. Right. Um, and I still, food justice is still very much rooted for us in economics. Um, but looking, be, um, having that opportunity to kind of walk through the door of food system change and how the food system does not work and my eyes being open to that absolutely right. the health and the environment piece um, has become more prominent right mm-hmm. right well i mean food yeah. is an economic system right absolutely. like agriculture yeah. i mean mm-hmm. think about slavery like yeah. agri- we For are sure. an agriculturally founded country yes. when when the colonizers came mm-hmm. and so food is an economic system yeah and the racial um, justice issue yeah sure. and mm-hmm. the and the environmental things you mentioned mm-hmm. like the pollution it doesn't tend to be in white wealthy mm-hmm. areas yeah. right it tends mm-hmm. to be in, in poor communities and in communities of color yeah um and so those are racial and economic issues mm-hmm. and need solutions that mm-hmm. pay attention to, to to all of those things yeah yeah sure. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. so we're getting towards the end of our interview, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you want to share about um, work that you have coming up, uh, ways that people can get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one big thing we're hoping everybody will um, mark their calendars is tomorrow um, and get ready for is a um, Black Lives Matter rally that we're having tomorrow at um, 1 p.m. in Waterbury with um People Against Police Brutality, Moral Monday, Connecticut, and Black Lives Matter, New Haven. This is in response to a um, really um, unacceptable um, wave of violence from um, police forces across the state. Um, We've had four deaths in the state since January um, as a result of um, police violence, and um, and many of these were... um, high speed chases, which are illegal chases that have happened that um, have ended, ended people's lives in the last few months. And over the last really, it, it goes back as far as anybody can, can look. Um, so we're having that um, rally tomorrow at Hayden park, two fifty Grove street in Waterbury. Um, we also have a police that's ac- Saturday, June 17th, Saturday, June 17th. It's tomorrow. Um, we also have a police accountability meeting. Um, we're we're going to be planning um, more of our work around um, accountability in Bridgeport um, Thursday at 6 p.m. So we're hoping people will come to that, um, especially folks in Bridgeport. Um, and um, finally, I would say just, you know, people want to go on our website, www.ctcore-organize-now.com. 
um, dot org. And you can sign up on our mailing list. You can become a member. Um, we do have um, a dues structure, but we ask people to pay what they can. Um, and then also for anybody who wants to contribute to our work, we um, hope that people will consider making donations. Um, people can send um, checks made out to our fiscal sponsor, A Better Way Foundation, to P.O. Box 8897, New Haven, Connecticut, 06532. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I listed all this stuff on thetableunderground.com. So awesome. if people yeah. go mm-hmm. to thetableunderground.com, there's a link to your website and people mm-hmm. can get information about the events and organizing you have. Yes, you can also make donations online if you go follow the link to our website. So yeah. we hope people will support. And we have a and Facebook page and an events page on our, on our website. And right. we're on Twitter. <laughs> Great, you got it covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Is the work open to anybody? I know you're trying to Mm -hmm. focus on leadership of people of color, but if there are white people that want to join and and support, is that... Yes. Are people welcome? Yeah, Yeah, our work is our work is open to anybody that wants to get involved. We do um, maintain some like spaces that are safe spaces for people of color, for black people. And like you said, we center the leadership of black people in our organization. But we um, welcome people who want to come in a spirit of solidarity um, and we welcome connections with um, everybody that, that's here for racial justice. Yeah, yeah, great. And um, I had been planning to bring some food to you guys because I <laughs> love feeding people, as you know. But I remember that we are still in Ramadan, and I know you said that you observe Ramadan. And so um, I brought you some things that I'm going to give to you. Um, I did, if people go to thetableunderground.com, there is a post up there about summertime thirst quenchers Mm -hmm. i know it got cold today but it's been like 90 something degrees every day and we're heading into summer and so this is a passion fruit drink because i think you guys could probably use (laughs) i know you have a lot of passion but i want some more like love passion for you and it has some local strawberries so we got our passion our our love our Mm -hmm. in there and some local food thank you and then as a another little treat um i brought you i've been experimenting with sprouting Mm -hmm. and i thought you know so much of what you're doing is you're growing new things right Mm -hmm. you're you're building on this amazing history Mm -hmm. and and history of activism and um and that you're sprouting new things and growing new things and bringing life and so i wanted to give you some living food which are these sprouts and they're from my first experiment which i will be posting some info um up on the website as well but those are beautiful yeah yeah (laughs) so people can go to the tableunderground.com to find recipes um, and they can listen to the Love Bab show where we were mixing them on mm-hmm. the radio. But I just wanted to give you guys a little love. Thank you, you so much. Not eat them now. You can <laughs> eat them tonight <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, or early, early yeah. tomorrow morning. Yeah. So yeah, thank you guys so much for, for joining. It was great thank to you. have you. Yeah. Thanks thank for you. all the hard work you're here. doing. Yeah. Thanks. Take care.